This is an ABC podcast. When you think of Australia's salt lakes, you might think of those really bright pink ones, the ones you see on Instagram posts with gorgeous people standing in the middle of them and looking like they're in infinity or something. But actually, Australia's salt lakes are pretty diverse and occur across actually a lot of the landscape. This is Lake Karangamite, and if you would walk around the edge of it, it would be something like 150 kilometres on Gulligan land. And as you went around, you'd hear this under your feet. It's not pebbles and it's not sand. It's millions of tiny little snail shells. They're shaped like little cones and they look about the size of rice bubbles. It's like there's been a snail ocalypse here. What the fuck? Hello, I'm Dr Anne Jones and welcome to What the Duck, where I literally do a double take at the natural world. And this one, this one's a doozy. Because if you live in a place like Australia's salt lakes, you're living in a place like Mars. So it would be pretty terrible on Mars, I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> not, a, not a great situation for a human or almost any life form. Bonnie Teese is an astrobiologist. That's a person who looks for and thinks a lot about life on other planets. And she just handed in her PhD. Most of Mars is about minus 60 degrees Celsius. The UV is super strong on Mars and there's basically no atmosphere. There's a really thin atmosphere and it's filled with CO2 and it's just not breathable for us. There's no plants or anything and so there's always dust storms and so you're just getting like buffeted by dust and it's just like not a good time at all. There's a few salt underground salt lakes on Mars and so they thought that there must be some water under these ice caps. Due to the fact it was liquid and at these temperatures it must be like highly saline water because otherwise it wouldn't be able to be liquid. The salty lakes would have implications for life maybe because some types of life can live in really really salty lakes but those are extremophiles and so that's not your everyday life form that's just chilling. Those are life forms that have adapted to live in like a really really extreme environment. Extremophiles, creatures so hardcore, so metal, that they can live even in the most hostile of environments. And even though Bonnie Teese is talking about Mars, she could very well be speaking about some of Australia's salt lakes. If we look on Earth at these really salty lakes, particularly in Western Australia, we can look at the kinds of life that live there and whereabouts in the lake it lives, and then that will help us look for life on Mars. We think that if Mars ever held life, it probably held microbial life because when it was warm and wet, it was very early in Mars's history. And very early in Earth's history, we only had microbes. And so in the modern day, the microbes live in very salty lakes in Western Australia, like in Shark Bay. And the type of life form that is, is a bunch of microbes hang out together and they trap and bind sediment into layers. And we call that a stromatolite. These stromatolites, these colonies of bacteria, they are really well preserved in the rock record on Earth and we think that they could be well preserved in the rock record on Mars. So the current Mars rover, Perseverance, 
is hanging out in Jezero Crater looking for stromatolites as evidence for life. Wow. Have you been across to see the stromatolites in WA? I sure have, yeah. It was probably one of the best moments of my life, I'm not going to lie. Um, <laughs> so I originally was not doing science and I was doing arts and I did a subject about astrobiology and I was like, oh my gosh, what is this? And and I completely changed my career. And I was like obsessed with these stromatolites and I had dreams about going to see them. And then when I first started my PhD, my supervisor he takes trips over to Western Australia and he calls it the Grand Tour and you go through the history of stromatolites and it was just everything I could have ever hoped for. I was standing there watching the waves buffet these stromatolites and just thinking like this is this is the oldest life form that we know of on our earth and I'm just chilling with it like how cool is that? Extremely cool. So These salt lakes, not only home to an ancient lineage of bacteria, not only places that NASA sends people to help get equipment ready for Mars, they're also incredibly beautiful. If you were to look at them from above, you'd kind of see this patchwork of different colours and different sizes. They are truly alien environments, and any extreme environment can tell you so much. This is Angus Laurie, who's studying the salt lakes of Australia for his PhD, focusing on the extremophiles that live in them. In Australia, we have thousands and thousands and thousands of salt lakes. We probably actually have more salt lakes than we do freshwater lakes. They range from tiny little ponds that are no bigger than the pond in your backyard to those massive player lakes in the outback that people often think are just endless wastelands, but actually when they fill with water are some of the most productive ecosystems going around in the outback. Angus spends lots of his time in southwest WA, where the salt lakes intersect with farmland. It's kind of interesting because as you're flying over, there'll be patches where all you'll see are, are crops. And then in the middle of the crops, you can see where the farmers obviously can't take advantage of the land that's there, so they'll just be holes and these holes will be salt lakes but usually there isn't just one there's like 10 all around in the middle of people's farmland but the ones that are the most beautiful you're flying over nature reserves and because you've got these deep greens of you know the Australian bush and then you've got these really beautiful sometimes crystal blues and yellows and greens and and the rest of it of, of the lakes that fit into that bigger picture of the Australian landscape. So they really do look like they fit. And of course they fit because they've been here for millions of years. I don't know, I find them really beautiful and it depends on how big the lake is as well. Because sometimes you can turn up to a lake and you can kind of like, oh yeah, you know, I'll walk across this thing in five minutes. And then you turn up to some lakes and it's like, oh, the other side of the lake is 10 kilometers away or 50 kilometers away. Big and salty like haters on the internet. But just how salty is a salt lake? A salt lake is broadly defined as any inland aquatic environment that has a salinity that is greater than three parts per thousand. How salty is that? It's funny, actually. So back when people were deciding where to draw the line between salt lake and freshwater lake, one of the things they actually used was taste, (laughs) funnily enough. So at about... 
three parts per thousand, um, apparently that's where the bitterness, mm. um, like a salty taste tends to come into your water. Mostly they're less than a meter deep. They're not particularly deep environments. So they're just like glass most of the time so that you can see straight through into this bed of mostly greenish kind of lush grass, which is one of the macrophytes that lives in there. And these form these beds. Sweet. So often when they have water in them, these places are not as crazily wasteland-like after all. They can have an underwater lawn. And some of the biodiversity is sort of easy to spot when you're there. You can go and sit next to a dairy farm on the edge of Lake Karangamite in Victoria and do some bird watching. I've been sitting on a rock on the shoreline for like a half an hour. My butt is asleep. Um because I've been waiting for a flock of red-necked stints to get closer and closer and now some of them are about 10 metres away from me. These are tiny little birds, the size of sparrows, that run and dart along the shoreline, dipping their beaks in uh, to get tiny little organisms to eat. When they run along the water's edge, their little legs move so fast that it looks like a little blur. But that isn't even the most amazing thing <laughs> about redneck stints. The most amazing thing is they fly to Siberia every single year to have their chicks. And then they fly all the way back to the southern hemisphere to Australia to salt lakes, shorelines just like this one, to feed up, get nice and fat, before flying all the way back to Siberia again. They go around and around the world like true world travellers. And here they are on the edge of this salt lake in the middle of farmland where I can hear cows mooing and farmers going to the pub for a Friday night. They're right here. These salt lakes are amazing. One of the things that I love about them is just how extreme they are. So I've sampled salt lakes all across the year and if you turned up to a salt lake in February, most of the time the salt, the lake will be dry, the bed will be solid, and there'll be no evidence that there was ever any form of ecosystem going on there. If you turned up in August after the first winter rains, everything comes to life. So all around the lake, all the vegetation starts blooming, you start having your wildflowers coming out, and in the lake itself, the actual organisms that I'm interested in are everywhere. And then you come back in three months' time and it's all gone again. Yeah, it's a boom and a bust, boom, bust, boom, bust. You, you get the point. So it's amazing. So a lake might start at 35 parts per thousand when it fills up, just the same as seawater. And by the time that it's almost dry, because it evapoconcentrates, the lake might end up at 150 parts per thousand. And you, you can turn up to a lake with less than an inch of water in it and there'll still be stuff swimming around. Okay. So, what sort of creature can possibly tolerate these conditions? The summer heat, the salty water, the fact you might spend 10 months of the year sitting on a hard bed of salt, open to the elements. My particular group is actually the gastropods, or the snails, that live in these systems. The name is Coxiella, and they're the only group of gastropods in the world that live in salt lakes, and exclusively live in salt lakes, nowhere else. And so they're globally kind of significant in that sense. They range from about yeah, six millimetres to about 15 millimetres, so they're quite small. Are these the sort of snails that have sort of flatter 
style swirly shells or do they have those pointy cone shaped ones like traffic cones or devo hats so if you've imagined a turret on a castle yeah they kind of look like that they're kind of long and cylindrical actually working out what you're looking at in terms of what species you have in front of you can be really quite difficult because one of the cool things is that depending on the salt lake that they grow up in it affects their morphology morphology is a fancy scientific way of saying what the shape and structure of a thing is if a snail grows up in a lake that is less saline it will look in a certain fashion and if another snail from the same species grows up in a salt lake that is more saline it will look slightly different and then that conclusion may lead you to think that they are different things which in fact they're not they're exactly the same species wow. that if they grew up in the same salt lake they would look identical wow this is super weird. The salinity level of the lake means the snails grow up looking entirely different, even though they're exactly the same species. And this is not a genetic difference. I don't know, it'd be like if a seaside-born silvergull had a tail like a lyrebird, and then an inland-born silvergull had a nice, neat, white-tucked-in tail. It's weird. And Angus Laurie says they're still not exactly sure what's going on with all that. It's definitely a what-the-duck moment, quite peculiar to salt lakes. They often like congregate in these mats. So you'll turn up to a salt lake and around the rim, it won't be mud, it'll be snails. It'll just be snails. And then back from the lake in the dunes, if they've been there for a while, there won't be dunes, it will be snail shells. There's just thousands and thousands and thousands of them. And that's one of the things that really stands out about the lakes that they're in is when they are present they are often extremely abundant and one of the cool things is when the lakes start drying out some of the snails some of the coxiella species they actually they basically start climbing on top of each other and form like these hills almost like these mounds of snails it's just like this white crest of just snails it's bizarre but they do that so that they can survive what's coming so when a lake starts drying out, the conditions get really extreme. So a salt lake might reach 50 degrees regularly during summer. The floor just heats up and heats up and heats up. And these things need to find a way of tolerating that period where they're dry. There is no water. These things are truly aquatic creatures. So they shut themselves off with their operculum, which is like a door almost. So they close the door on their house and they just lie there dormant until the rains come again, which may not happen for another six months or so. These snails do the human equivalent of curling up in the fetal position. They close their shell, they wait out the summer, they sit on the bed of a lake. They are insanely hardy. So my snails, for example, I've just actually completed a whole bunch of experiments where I've tested their salinity tolerances. In the field, I found them from as fresh as about three parts per thousand, so almost fresh water. I found them all the way up active, moving around happy to about 100 parts per thousand. And some of the experimental work that I've just done has backed that up. So they have a really, really broad range in which they can, they can occur. Given that seawater is 35 parts per thousand, these little snails with their soft bodies, the hard shells on their back, can survive in water three times more salty than the sea. But they're not the only ones who survive in these Mars-like environments. Crustaceans are, are super diverse. They are the most diverse group that have colonised Australian salt lakes. 
And they include something that might be familiar to children of the 1980s and beyond, sea monkeys. Yes, we have several species of native sea monkeys. They're very different than the ones you probably had as pets, but yeah, they're out there tolerating the harshest environments in the world, like teenager bedrooms. One of the key adaptions that they have is, particularly in the crustaceans, is they lay these highly resistant, desiccation resistant eggs. And these things can tolerate, you know, years of just sitting there in the dirt, waiting to be rehydrated. And you think about how hot it gets out there. Some of these solic invertebrates are sea monkeys. Their eggs have been tested and survive up to like 100 degrees plus and have been frozen to negative, you know, 15 degrees. And they, they can still hatch after that. So these things are really, really hardy. So I've turned up to salt lakes where the water hasn't been water, it's been sludge, where the sludge is comprised of brine shrimp. Brine shrimp being the less proprietary based name for the family of creatures that sea monkeys come from. So it's so dense that these things are no longer moving and there's, this is in a situation where the lake is almost dried up. So there's probably about two inches of water left in it, but the water isn't water it literally is just squirming brine shrimp and you can see them they're, they're, they're large you know they're like a tiny little prawn almost but that goes for even when the lakes are you know not drying out and they're just they're in a regular stage the abundance of organisms can be really amazing you kind of look at a lake and you you're looking into the water and initially you don't see anything but then then the floor starts moving and the water column starts moving and it's just yeah there are just animals everywhere Then it's funny, we have these things called giant ostracods, which is a bit of a misnomer because ostracods are generally quite small, but these things are three millimeters long as opposed Four. to one millimeter long. <laughs> so yeah, so exactly. So they get called giant ostracods. They look like a sunflower seed, but if the sunflower seed was split in half and had legs hanging out the front of it and they kind of like grasp their way forward. That's so Yeah, cool. if you want alien ideas, just look at look at salt lakes there's full there's heaps of them and it's it's actually amazing these things are actually free swimming predators so they're tiny but they're taking on things like the brine shrimp for example the brine shrimp will get to, oh, about two and a half centimeters long maybe a bit longer these ostracods which are three mil long are taking on these brine shrimp just like clinging onto their legs and they're ferocious they're bizarre truly the giant ostracods are possibly the most metal of all the extremophiles that Angus told me about. These things probably have the highest salinity tolerances, not just the highest, but the greatest range. So you've got some species that can tolerate from almost freshwater, about three parts per thousand, all the way up to 200 plus parts per thousand, which is just absurd. That's like six times seawater. Within the brine shrimp, you'll have species that not only tolerate extreme salinity ranges, but also tolerate extreme pH ranges. So from pH of three all the way up to a pH of seven with a salinity of 150. These things are just, they're, they're amazing how they're able to tolerate such extreme environmental variants. Okay, so imagine a saltwater gargle, literally warm water with teaspoons of salt in it, then adding lemon juice to make it acidic. That's the sort of thing that Angus is talking about here. Water that could eat its way through your teeth. 
How do these tiny creatures survive it? It's something that we, we actually don't fully understand. And one of the things about ostracods is that they, they secrete a calcium carbonate shell, which if you put calcium carbonate in an acidic water, it dissolves. So how they're able to maintain you know, structural integrity of their own shells is, is a question that needs to be answered, frankly. It's really, really cool. Now, because these creatures are able to exist in such incredibly difficult conditions, doesn't mean that they don't have limits, right? And what are the, sure. the dangers, I suppose, in a conservation sense to these ecosystems? Plenty, plenty. Um, the biggest one would be neglect, actually. It can often be difficult to appreciate an ecosystem that's only present for a few months at a time. But it's really important to keep that lake intact when it's dry because we know how abundant things can occur when there is water there. There are so many challenges that salt lakes face in Australia. The biggest and most pervasive, as with everything, will be climate change. The effect of the climatic drying from the late 90s through to the early 2010s, over that period alone, there is indications that we're losing bucket load of species over that period. So about two-thirds almost, and that is in relation to the drying, purely just the drying, the decline in rainfall that we're experiencing in southwest Australia. And not just that, but when you combine that threat with some of the other threats, so one of the big ones that occurs is what we call secondary salinization. So it's essentially where agricultural crops have replaced the native vegetation, the groundwater rises, so you end up with salt scarring on the surface, ruins the agricultural land, it ruins the typical landscape. And you might think that increased salt is good for these salt lake invertebrates, and in some cases that may be true. But what's changing is actually the hydrology of the system. So a lake drying out, we think, might be really important for actually triggering certain events in the life cycle of some of the invertebrates. So if the lake's no longer drying out because the water table is now sitting high enough that it's intersecting with the bottom of a lake, so it's always holding water, once those species of crustacea in particular die out, they might not be able to come back and they may go locally extinct from that system. Mm. We know that that's actually happened in southwest WA already for some of the brine shrimp, which seem to have disappeared from lakes that we know historically they occurred in, but recent sampling, we've been unable to find them. As another example, Lake Karangamite in Western Victoria, for a long time was this permanent, beautiful system that was super diverse and had really strong bird fauna and fish in it and all sorts. And then in, I think in the 60s, water started to be diverted from that lake and that water was fresh water, which was crucial in controlling the salinity of that system. So when that fresh water was diverted, it completely fundamentally changed the ecosystem. And as a result, a whole bunch of species are no longer found there that were once found there. So these snails are apparently almost gone now from Lake Karangamite here in Victoria. Just their shells are left in drifts on the shorelines. They could survive water that is saltier than the ocean. They could survive the heat, the UV, the varying water levels, flocks of migratory birds trying to eat them. But they couldn't survive us. 
What the Duck is an ABC Science production. I'm Ann Jones and I produce the program along with Patria Ladgrove. Joel Werner does the script editing. And if you've got a nature mystery that you'd like an answer to, like me with these rice bubble snail shells, then drop us an email at whattheduck at abc.net.au. All right. You really probably shouldn't visit the biggest permanent salt lake in Victoria without attempting to taste the water, right? Probably going to regret this. I mean, this is like several magnitudes more salty than seawater, so I mean, I can't get sick by tasting it, right? Ooh. Oh yeah, no, it just tastes like the beach. <laughs> I don't know what I expected. <laughs> You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.